0: Find out more by going to wwwintelligencequaredcom forward slash partnerships. Hello,
1: and thanks for downloading the No Bullshit Leadership podcast. If you're interested in learning more about the life-changing power of great leadership, I have two exciting pieces of news. The first is that my new book, No Bullshit Change, is out now in hardback Kindle or on Audible. And the second is that I've launched a brand new online no bullshit leadership training program. It's designed for anybody who has ambitions they want to fulfill, places they want to go, and people they want to help thrive. If that's you, head over to my website chris-hurst.com to sign up for more information. That's chris-hurst.com. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, I'm Chris Hurst, and welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast, brought to you by Intelligence Squared. Leadership is difficult, but not complicated, and I want to help cut through the bullshit to get to the heart of modern leadership, which, put simply, is the power to get stuff done and make stuff happen. In each episode, I'm joined by a different inspirational leader who is doing just that, leading change in their worlds of business, sport, or politics. And my guest today is Justine Roberts, the founder and CEO of Mumsnet. Since launch in 2000, Mumsnet has grown into a social network for parents with over 5 million visits a month and users contributing over 25,000 posts every day. Mumsnet has become one of the most influential voices in the UK, regularly setting the national media agenda on behalf of its community and parents across the country. It is now an essential, if intimidating, port of call for party leaders in every general election. Justine was awarded a CBE in 2017 for services to the economy. Welcome to the podcast, Justine.
2: Thanks,
1: Chris. Great to be here. So you, today you're nationally famous as the founder of Mum's Net. but your first job, as I understand it, was in finance, where you were one of only two women, I think, on the trading floor you worked on. And I was actually also delighted to read that you were at some point a cricket reporter. So you've had what seems to me like a pretty varied and interesting career, even before Mum's Net. yet you've been quoted as saying that you never really felt like you had a good cultural fit with those organisations or perhaps those careers. Can you tell us a little bit about your time before Mumsnet?
2: Yeah, sure. So I think I I went into the city because I really didn't know what to do. And I wanted to Basically, move out of home. I'd done a very brief bit of work experience as a market maker, which is one of the people who set the prices on the floor of a stock exchange, and I quite enjoyed myself. But they were very male. I think the sort of underlying factor of all these careers I picked very early on, including sports reporting, football and cricket writing, was they were really male dominated, and that it was very unusual to be a woman at that time doing this stuff. And I think I had a massive point to prove. And that's why I did them. I was just trying to prove that I could do it as well as the guys. There were many aspects to it, which were deeply difficult and uncomfortable as a woman in those environments, which were really misogynistic, but also quite homophobic and racist and all the other things that kind of 1980s and 90s Britain was, and particularly these very male-dominated environments, before any sense of, of, well, some people would call it wokeism, but I might call it how to behave.
1: Well, my next question, which I think I've got a reasonable idea of the answer to already, my next question was going to be, why did you eventually leave finance? But I guess that might be at least part of the reason.
2: Yeah, it was. But the, the main catalyst was I got pregnant, actually. And I was very clear in my head that it was no place to sort of raise a family if you're a woman. And there are a few women who'd reached the top, very few, but they, they basically did it by denying their family existed. So they would work even longer hours. They would never get home for bath time. They would be working all weekend up at the crack of dawn. And I just thought, this is not going to work. This is not what I want to do. And it's sort of been, in a way, getting pregnant and having a sort of change imposed upon me was quite useful because it, it creates a natural break where you take a pause and think, look, this, is this really me? And I sort of resoundingly came down on, no, it's not really me. I need to do something else.
1: And so the, what came first then? Or maybe it wasn't quite as binary as this, but was, the, was it the idea for Mumsnet that came first? Or was it the idea that... I need to go and work for myself? Or even was it just less concrete even than that, that I just need to go and do something else and I need to find out what that is?
2: Yeah, it was less concrete. I never thought, oh, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I think women sort of are quite reluctant to call themselves entrepreneurs. Really, They're, as far as I was concerning concerned, I was just started something to try and solve a problem. And I often joke that men open a cupboard door and call themselves entrepreneurs, but women are a bit reluctant. But I was just I was fulfilling a need that I myself had, which I think is often the case for people who start businesses. I needed advice from other parents who'd been there and done that, and the internet had just started, and it seemed like a very good place to be able to tap into the advice of others
1: and so was there a was there so a kind of an obvious catalytic moment then for when Mumsnet was born if you ex- if you excuse the pun <laughs> in your mind
2: I think it was. I don't know if you remember back then, Chris, but it was like the gold rush days of the internet. Everyone was starting, everyone had a web idea, everyone had an idea for their website. I was, in a way, in a fortunate position that I had. I was in a natural pause in my career. As it turned out, it turned out to be really bad timing because the dot-com crash happened within six months of us launching and we never really we never really managed to raise any cash so so it wasn't the great moment i thought it was but but in a way it all worked out
1: yeah so that was going to be my, my understanding is you your initial sort of plan a if you like as you say in 1999 which was the sort of In first gold rush era of the internet, I suppose, you set out, I suppose, what I would describe as a fairly conventional approach to launching a business. You said, okay, I have a business plan. I have an idea. I have a plan. I need to go and raise some funds. You wanted to raise, I think, four or five million pounds. And then dot-com bubble burst and i guess that raising funds for internet companies became (laughs) extremely difficult so 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 you then moved to plan b i guess so can you just talk us through that a little bit in terms of how your thinking and your i suppose approach to the business chain
2: no i think i was never that sure about raising lots of money but it was very much in the sort of prevailing wind that you had to grow as fast and as big as you possibly could and it was called known as land grab so you would stake out your territory but like the wild west and the first there was an advantage to the first mover but i wrote a business plan that really wasn't worth the paper it was written on i think even now we're just about we're just about making the e-commerce revenues that we predicted in year 3 of my business plan way back then and I hadn't really factored in was the fact that everyone was on dial-up. Lots of people hadn't adopted the internet.
1: Smartphones uh, didn't exist, did they?
2: No, exactly. So you had to be quite sort of persistent to even try and do any kind of online commerce. And then, of course, there was no money. To be fair, there was a period when I, other people were raising money and I wasn't. And I think a lot of that was because but I didn't quite look or sound the part and... A lot of the money was coming from, as it still does, actually, the venture market, Which, where there were very few women and they didn't really get women's problems. So I remember someone said, did actually offer me the money, but said that he wanted someone else to run the business. And that someone oh. was a 25-year-old man who didn't oh, have kids. So, and I didn't. Anyway. anyway, it all turned out for the best, really, because frankly, it soon became apparent that the business model was not right. Had we raised money, we would have been like many other startups at that time that got a fancy office in Clerkenwell, hired 100 people, and then realized that they actually weren't making any revenue and would have gone bust, and I would have had to lay people off. So, so it was for the best. We quickly began to realize that Momsnet, even though we couldn't work out the economics of it, was proving to be quite useful. So I think in answer to your question, why didn't I just give up? Even six months in, it became apparent that it was going to actually be useful to people. People were getting answers to their questions, and they were important questions in their life. So we actually sort of begged and borrowed for the first five years, including sort of asking users to contribute. And they, these cheques used to arrive for 250 quid and just from someone saying, you, you've been a lifesaver to me. So, so we were in a way fortunate that we didn't raise money because I think, I wonder whether we'd be here now had we raised that money in the beginning. And so,
1: so given the, well, I say the centrality, the, heart, the clue is in the name, Mumsnet, is a community that you've created, a huge and growing community how do you see your relationship, particularly as a leader? Do they lead you? Do you lead them? Is it symbiotic, the relationship?
2: We try and reflect the voice of the community. So, we're, one of our kind of core goals is to raise women's voices. So, we're very much user led. And I think part of the one of the good reasons, again, about not raising money and our users financially supporting the site was that they very clearly became stakeholders very early on. So that's how I would view it. I would say our community is a very important stakeholder and they are empowered to make choices about the site and always have been. So a lot of our decisions about who we work with in terms of advertisers have been put to the community and they have basically been the arbiters of of what type of work we do and who we do it with. And that's still the case. How
1: formal do you make that process? Do you actively have a process that says we're we're listening to what people are talking about, people are worrying about, people are asking about, and therefore we should build this new product or go in this new direction or uh, change in some way to reflect that? I
2: think it's more embedded in our culture. So we have a culture deck and we outline everything, all the behaviors we want to see in our team. And it's a bit like, do you remember Amazon always used to put an empty chair in every meeting, which was supposed to symbolize the customer. Everyone would always think about what the customer, how the customer would think about this if they were listening in. And I think it's a bit like that. It's utterly embedded in what we do and our choices. Now, we also, Mumsday is effectively a 24-7 focus group. So it's very there is no, we don't have to go and ask, we get told quite a lot of what what we should be campaigning on, what we should be building, who we should work with, what we should and shouldn't do. The difficulty comes in where there isn't consensus, because it is it's six million users and they are from all political persuasions and they have very often very conflicting views about things. So we kind of have a set of principles that will campaign on things, but it has to be something that's where there's... A, good majority feel in favor and that it, there isn't a kind of 25% who utterly feel completely polarized by this. So we, for instance, could not have campaigned on Brexit because never it was so polarized and it was on Mumsnet as it was in the rest of the country. So we'd stay away from things where there is division and we focus our energy on things when where the majority and by that at least 80% of our users are in strong agreement and the rest aren't that bothered if you know what I mean.
1: So you mentioned culture a couple of minutes ago and I'm a passionate advocate or believer whatever word you want to choose about the power of organizational culture all organizations have a culture in my opinion it's just that some have a good culture and some have a bad culture but as soon as you have a group of people together over a prolonged period of time a culture evolves you talked about having a very deliberate approach to the culture at Mumsnet can you just describe that a little for me
2: yeah It took a while to get there, to be honest. I think you're right, all organisations had a culture, but we were not aware of ours and we were not aware of what we wanted it to be and how we might nudge it along until really an epiphany in sort of around 2014, 2015. So before that, I would just describe Mums as having a very sort of English, nice, flexible, nice culture. And that actually was quite crippling in many ways because everyone was in a very English way scared of saying anything critical because we're all told particularly I think women are all told and we had a lot of women working for us as you can imagine that if you haven't got anything nice to say don't say it at all and that's kind of the opposite of actually how people grow and develop is this sort of Let's not give any feedback because we might hurt someone's feelings kind of thing. So that was one of the major motivations for trying to get to grips with it. And actually, I was inspired really by Netflix, who had done a culture deck, which is kind of warts and all. And we use ours as much to say who won't fit in here as to say, come and join us. It's not a pitch. And we are very aware that some of them. Some of the elements of our culture deck are a work in progress for us, like the ones about feedback. We still have to work really hard at it because we default to this thing that's ingrained in us, which is don't criticise, don't criticise. So we've adopted a kind of number of things. I'll give you an example. We just have a deck which has what our values are what we believe in and then some examples of how to behave certain how not to behave so one of them is we'd rather have a hole than an arsehole for our hiring so we've made loads of mistakes over the year where we just think we've desperately got to fill this position knowing the person that we're hiring isn't quite right and it always comes back to haunt you that type of decision and the other is we say computer says yes so we're always trying to instead of just saying it can't be done trying to work out a way of how it can be done and all the feedback stuff which as I say is a work in progress and we we've adopted something called radical candor which is all about a combination of management sort of both caring personally but giving direct and candid feedback in the moment as a development thing and we're trying to all sort of repeat the mantra that feedback is a gift not a criticism Um, so lots of things but I have to say it took me a while to get there and everyone said said Mumset was nice a nice place to work but I'm not sure it was what people really want from the workplace I think is amazing colleagues and to feel a sense of progress and development and that they're working for something with purpose And I think for that to happen, we have to give people, we have to have a mechanism for giving feedback so people can grow.
1: Fascinating listening to you because I agree with every single word you've said. My understanding is pretty well exactly as you described it, which is it's about creating an environment where we can achieve things we wouldn't otherwise achieve. We want somewhere where, of course, we're happy and we enjoy being there, but also that is helping us achieve whatever our individual personal goals might be. And these days, we maybe all have quite different ones. And I also think that A great culture can disagree without falling out, which is sort of my version, a bit, of your feedback. I think a great culture has to be able to be honest with each other. As you say, you can be honest without being a dick. And it is difficult to do well. It is difficult to be able to have honest conversations with each other. But if you don't, that's when the resentments and the politics and all that stuff builds up, doesn't it? Because the feelings don't go away. They just get hidden and, and bottled up and resentment builds up. And I also feel that culture is nearly always a continual work in progress. It has to be just always on the to-do list. You can't think, oh, yeah, tick, we've done culture, let's move on. It's so central. And you talked in there about purpose as well. You talked again in the past, I think, about choosing purpose over profit. What is MomsNet's purpose today?
2: Well, our overriding purpose is to make parents' lives easier by facilitating the connections that allow them to tap into the wisdom of each other. I think it's quite interesting because obviously we are a social platform and they've come under a lot of scrutiny for the moderation that occurs on them. And I think where we have always been slightly different to many of the often larger platforms, frankly, is that we have invested in moderation and we have made value-laden decisions about the type of content that we are going to take down. So we have put ourselves into that sort of space, which the bigger platforms have tried to shy away from, which is we're not just a dump pipe. This is a value-laden decision. And we will explain how we do it. But the one that trumps everything in the end is it making parents' lives easier. So sometimes you can get tied up in rules and regulations and has someone broken the language of what you've said you'll allow, moderation is very difficult if you get tied up in that kind of language and what we've always tried to do therefore is say in the end we get to decide and we'll base it on our core purpose which is this making parents lives easier and that's the way we moderate and we it's hard work because you're dealing with a lot of individuals who have different opinions about what what type of information should be allowed on mums debt and what shouldn't and all the rest of it but i think we have invested in that and that's why we're still here and that's why mums Debt still even though i know it can be feisty is a pretty civilized place to hang out and where people can get genuine help because i think we've invested in that value-laden moderation which is all comes down to what our purpose is and why we're here
1: i go back a few years again now so you start to build this community you're in your bedroom initially but the community grows and grows eventually by 2006 you had David Cameron I think on there so then you've six years after launch start really starting to cut through in a big way at what point did you start to work out how to make money as a business out of the community
2: well I think you need scale to make money out of advertising and we got scale so it wasn't I don't think it was any sort of epiphany. It was just, uh, yeah, (laughs) and also we caught a wave, to be honest, of the switch from print advertising to digital. So without making too much effort, brands would come to us. And to be honest, it wasn't a major focus for us, how to make money. And again, probably because we didn't have investors, we were tied up with growing and doing a good job and campaigning and stuff like that that we probably didn't give a lot of thought to monetization but it was good i remember in 2008 we could finally move out of the back bedroom into an office and we got a big (laughs) book deal actually with bloomsbury and but you know i yeah i'm slightly embarrassed about it really because we didn't really think a lot about it we thought about who we wouldn't work with but basically i suppose it wasn't our major focus but the model became obvious because brands came to us and i'm
1: sure as well that that you are a very public figure in the sense that you are intimately associated with Mumsnet, you are the personification perhaps of Mumsnet as the founder and leader and are you conscious of that and are you conscious of that in, in terms of your own leadership style? I'm
2: conscious of the fact that I'm no, no longer the appropriate demographic I think to be a <laughs> spokesperson, um, very conscious of that. I, yeah I mean I think all this stuff is a journey, I am more conscious than I was and actually had to go go through a whole sort of reprogramming of myself and a big learning exercise where I had to admit that I wasn't, what I was. A, I thought, a particularly ineffective leader actually for about the first, and it's still a work in progress, for about the first sort of 12 to 15 years of my, I was just, I was a classic founder where I was involved in everything, thought I had to make every decision, wasn't very good at feedback wasn't very good just tended to sort of plow on and make all the decisions and not really trust anyone and had low and i sort of went on a course and i realized this and it dawned on me and i thought well have i got the capacity to actually be different or is it so ingrained in me and maybe there are some people who are just better at starting things than running things and do i even want to because it is it's like i've got to reprogram myself and this is going to be hard and i'm going to have to face up to the fact that i don't have all the answers or rather i shouldn't have all the answers because the organisation will never scale and as i say it's a work in progress but so i suppose what i'm saying is i i think your question was does it make me behave differently i think we have all have a responsibility to understand that whoever's in charge of an organisation is a role model and needs to needs to keep learning and try to understand that that they just because people look up to you, doesn't mean you're deserving of their respect. That's very wise words.
1: So now then in 2022, how would you describe yourself as a, leader or as a leader? By the way, in full disclosure, I hate it when people ask me that sort of question. So there you go. That's an insight <laughs> <Yeah>. to me.
2: <laughs> look, we have tried to, we have written down, as many organizations have, our values, and they are my values, really. They are they're partly aspiration, but they're partly what we think. We are and what we believe in and, and so my leadership style it should reflect those values because it is what I think what I how I want us to behave and how I want myself to behave and how I want everyone who works at Mumsnet to behave and the, they are the most important one is being straight and honest and doing the right thing when no one's looking but then there's quite a lot about being flexible and pragmatic and not bureaucratic and collaborative so, I think that's what how I would like to think that i that I lead the business. I now have an amazing team, and that is very helpful because I always thought it was very hard to delegate, maybe just I couldn't delegate, but actually, it really helps if you hire people who are really fantastic. yes <laughs> no, I yes
1: very that, easy that helps delegate. in many ways. <laughs> yes <laughs> it really does um
2: so i think i'm hoping that um i'm not the one to ask what my leadership style is but i'm and, and i'm very conscious that i have to work at it all the time but i hope i have gone from rather command controlled style leadership to a more collaborative yeah, a bottom up approach where we definitely ask everyone in the business to contribute ideas and to set their own we we might have goals but they set their own path to reaching them, which is ends up with a lot more. I think innovation and something you have to do as you scale because you're not at the coal face anymore, and I'm not the target audience anymore, frankly.
1: All organisations need hierarchies to function. You can't function without some sort of hierarchy. But I also feel like hierarchies need to be permeable. You need you need to be able yeah. to communicate effectively through those up and down that hierarchy it's obviously easy to communicate top down <laughs> but actually you need to hear yeah. it the other way as well and i think that a lot of organizations yeah. and a lot of leaders find that very difficult but it's incredibly important otherwise really you've no idea what's going on in your own organization
2: yeah i think yeah. that's right and it comes back to this thing of trying to engender a culture of giving feedback with in a sort of yes. safe environment yes. without anyone getting upset cross or angry at
1: Yes, I was researching my new book, and I reread the book by Ed Catmull, who was the founder of Pixar. And he talks very compellingly about, about culture. Really, it's a book about culture and mm-hmm. about how hard they worked to ensure that everybody had a voice all the time.
2: We've adopted OKRs. Okay In any case... Because we've always had a very flexible workforce, we've always focused a bit more on outputs and a bit less on presenteeism and being there. So I think adopting a system where you say, look, here are the company goals. Each team go and make up your quarterly goals to get us closer to the company goals rather than... A list of tasks for everyone, which is what, it,
1: uh, what uh, we used to have. A hundred percent. As you say, you've employed all of these fantastically ambitious, capable, intelligent people. And so what's the point of doing that if you don't allow them to go and yeah. <laughs> find their own solutions? They'll inevitably do it far better um, because yes. they're doing it all day long every day. But it's easy to say, and difficult to do other, sometimes, is, isn't it? Yeah. And
2: the other thing that I think has been really useful, actually, is this, which we stole from Larry Page of Google, which is really ambitious goals. So somehow or other you have to set people targets that basically they're going to miss. Most of the time anyway. And that that we had to get around that was really quite tough for us because everyone was a sort of high achiever and wanted to hit their target. And but you have to set such stretched targets that largely they miss. But even in missing they get a better outcome than had they had a sort of plus 10% type target. And occasionally you get some massive innovation because people are really thinking outside the box to meet a real stretch target. So as long as you can deal with people's disappointment and make them understand, it's so much. It's, we've had some real step changes because of stretch 10x type targets.
1: I, I always think that aiming for best, however you define best, whatever that might be, but if you aim for best, you have to think of transformational solutions. Whereas if you aim for a bit yeah. better, you end up with incremental solutions. And yeah. but also, I think, listening to you, the, that setting of unreasonably ambitious targets, however so you want to describe yeah. them, is it, yeah. fine as long as that's where culture matters so much, I think. So If that, if that, as long as the culture cr- is one that may, ensures that people understand that and don't feel like they're failing. If everybody spends their whole time feeling like failures, that's a bad thing. But if everybody understands that's how we work around here and we define success in, here's how we define success for you as an individual and those two things align, then I think that's great. And I think that's why culture and objectives, it's all kind of, they have such a close and symbiotic relationship.
2: Exactly right, and I think you know we have a quarterly presentation. Everyone does red, amber, green for their OKRs, and it's basically a sea of red and amber with the odd green. But what people talk about is what they've learnt. What we've learned from this, or we we didn't hit it, but we did learn this, and we will do it differently next time. And I think it is that we that thing which is very hard to do again if you're if you come out of any large sort of traditional organization which is celebrating mistakes and learnings in fact not even yes. viewing them as mistakes but viewing them as learnings and we mm. I write up a mail to the team every week in which I really celebrate mistakes now obviously yeah. you're making the mm. same mistake every week that yes. was, you would not be uh, Yeah that. you know exactly but exactly other than exactly that, it, <laughs> it is trying to create a culture of look like, it's fine to fail
1: I couldn't agree more with that I read a I read John Cleese said a similar thing. He said everybody talks about failure and failure, if failure, if you don't learn from failure, it remains just that. Failure, it's about your ability to learn from it that is so important. And I think great organizations are really good at learning. So, so you're now a leadership icon and inspiration for all sorts of people out there in the UK. Have there been inspirational leaders, inspirational people, mentors that have helped you along the way?
2: Well, I'm not even necessarily accepting the premise of your question. I just want to.
1: <laughs> oh, come put on, that on <laughs> Come on.
2: Yeah, I suppose what, this is going to sound a bit cheesy, but it's probably true. Is my biggest inspiration in running Mumsnet does come from the people on the site who go out of their way to really help each other in you know, for no praise. They're anonymous they're gaining nothing. It's often in the middle of the night where they will stay up with someone and help them get their baby to latch on. Or they will turn up at someone's holiday house with a child's soft toy because the favourite soft toy wasn't brought on the holiday and someone, a mum's letter lives locally and has that soft toy. Amazing amazing. things that kind of inspire you about human nature, to be honest, and make you realise that there's a, there's something about ordinary individuals and how they will go out of their way to be helpful that's really inspiring. Um, yeah. Having said that, lots of people, really, lots of, I've taken inspiration from lots of people. A very early, in my very early days, it was Bill Shankly and the way that he created a community around Liverpool Football Club and a sense of purpose that was bigger than the sum of the parts and always believed in the team, the team. And yeah, yeah, that would be I mean, too many people to mention, really.
1: But yeah, I think Bill Shankly a pretty good one, to be honest with you. Bill Shankly a great one. And <laughs> what? So in, in these twenty-two years, then looking back, and I'm sure there's much more to come. That's going to be my last question. But what are you most proud of?
2: I, I suppose I'm partly proud that we're still here. It's <laughs> a fairly grueling thing to to sort of yeah. run your own business but also run such a sort of public which yeah. has attracted its fair share of kind of well criticism it's been targeted in a number of ways and I would say there are some people that rather would rather we weren't in existence and that women weren't collecting and organizing and having a community yeah. online yeah so I'm pleased we're still here and I'm pleased here and that thriving.
1: We're... Here and thriving, Christine. Come
2: on. <laughs> and I'm pleased that we still have our values. We have our values and we live by yes. them and we know what they You've are. You've done it your way. why we're here. Yeah. yeah. We know what yeah. we're doing. And we don't always do it the way other people would like us to, but, but we do put our users at heart and centre of what we do. And, and I think people have derived value from that. A lot of value, actually.
1: And so the obvious final question is, what next? What next for you? What next for Mums next?
2: Our job is to facilitate the conversation that allows people to get answers to questions. that's why people come. They get great answers to their questions. So we just need to make sure we're sort of, if you like, kind of technology neutral in that, mm. and to deliver mm. those answers in the way that the people want them answered, and mums who are pregnant people now. What do they expect from a platform yeah. that facilitates the, them finding those answers? So we're quite mindful of that, how we need to make sure that we, we're pretty neutral about what, what it is, what the technology is, as long as we are true right. to our purpose. So that means exploring lots of different ways of delivering that, really. And we haven't spoken about it, but I would say one of the biggest mistakes I've made over the course of time is not sort of keeping up to date with the technology fast enough, allowing technical debt to get into the company that, um, that takes a long time to unpick. And I think we're through that now and ready to sort of develop. And we've got a great team. So we're excited about what we can build for our users.
1: Mom's net on the metaverse, something like that. Is that what you're thinking? So <laughs> well,
2: if I understood what it was, maybe. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> I might, exactly. might be a fast follower there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think that's probably the good idea. So, Justine, it's been absolutely fantastic having you on. Thank you so much. Really inspirational. What a great story. And I love talking to you. So, thank you
2: so much. It's been a pleasure. Nice to meet you, Chris. Thanks a lot.
1: Thank you.
0: Find out more by going to www.intelligencequared.com forward slash partnerships.